Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Bath, Sean Cumming. Thanks for tuning in to episode 147 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I've been holding back on releasing this episode with Sean for a number of reasons, uh, and it got actually got recorded quite a few weeks ago, so I'm really pleased to be able to get it out and get it out now. Um, so as you can imagine, with Sean's expertise, uh, we have focused our attention on uh, relative age effects, uh, biological maturity, maturation, uh, and that area around youth development, um, given short, like I say, given Sean's expertise in that area. So if you do work with youth athletes, um, especially those that are in, in well, involved in football, um, this will definitely be an episode that you will um, that you love. So along with a couple of other episodes where I've mentioned it, uh, we do have a little chat about biobanding. Uh, and the positives and negatives for that, given that, that Sean has a, um, a big involvement in what's going on uh, in the Premier League with regards to, uh, to biobanding and the research around that. So this is one of the nice things about the bioban and you get to see the kid in a slightly different developmental context and uh, you know having the opportunity to see them in both kind of conditions sometimes allows you to actually see through the, the differences in maturity and actually figure out, well, you know, when this kid is actually pitched against kids who are maybe of a similar, similar physical development, you know, this kid might actually be a player. It could be quite good. So that's been one of the nice bonuses of it. So just before we get into the chat with Sean, I just wanted to announce that the this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast has been supported by the Football Association, the FA. So Sean continues his relationship with the FA's uh, educational department in tutoring on the growth and development and loading monitoring aspects of the Advanced Youth Award, which is the equivalent of the A license uh, along the youth coaching pathway. So this is basically this relationship is basically an extension of the the program to support CPD of those that are working in the game, in in, in football, in soccer. So hopefully. This will get out to those that are involved in the game and can guide their practice, which is basically what the podcast is is there to be doing. So hopefully this relationship with the FA gets the this information that Sean's going to deliver in this podcast to where it needs to go. So really excited to bring you that fantastic news um, of the FA uh, sponsoring this episode today. Also sponsoring this episode today are the guys at Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar. So if you are travelling to the UKSA this weekend, which is the weekend of the 4th, 5th, 6th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of August, uh, make sure you go to the Val Performance stand uh, and have a little chat with them guys um, and have, have a little play on the Nord board and the grind bar and I'm sure they'll have a leaderboard or something that you uh, you beasts can get on the, on the, on the Nord board and um, show them what your hamstrings have got. So, uh, yeah, definitely say hello to them, guys, and massive thanks for sponsoring the episode today. So over to the episode with Sean. Um, Hope you enjoy, and I'll chat soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Sean Cumming, who is the Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Bath. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you very much, Rob, for the invitation. Looking forward to chatting. 
No, it's great to have you on, mate. So just before we start, I just want to say a massive thanks to Joe Eisenman for making the connection. So every episode, there seems to be someone who's put me in touch with someone else. So obviously, make sure that I thank them people. Um, so, Sean, just before we get into the, the chat, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on you, who you are and what, you've, uh, what you're currently doing? Okay, so I'm at the senior lecturer at the University of Bath, and uh, I did my PhD at Michigan State University, studying under uh, Professor Robert Molina. And uh, although my background was in psychology, uh, you know, I'd uh, never really done much work in growth and maturation. But uh, when I was working with Professor Molina, I found that quite fascinating. And since then, you know, I've uh, kind of spent the last sort of uh, twenty odd years looking at uh, some of the psychobehavioral uh, sort of correlates of growth and maturation in the context of both sport and exercise. And currently here working at the University of Bath. Nice. So you've, you've done multiple projects, one notably with the Premier League. Just want to tell yep. us a little bit about that. Okay, so uh, it started off, I was, I was doing some work with the Lawn Tennis Association. They had recognised that they had a big selection bias towards early maturing boys. And uh, some of the kids who were identifying at 12 or 13 being as more successful were not typically following through. And that was largely due to the fact that, yeah, they were focusing upon the early maturing boys. So I was doing work in that area and the Premier League were aware of that and uh, was part of the EPPP. They had sat down with a lot of their academy heads and uh, asked them, you know, where they would like some advice and uh, guidance as it related to sports science. And a common problem across all of the academies at that point of time was growth and maturity. They were very aware that they had a strong selection bias towards early maturing boys. And uh, there was a concern that they were over-investing in these boys, but at the same time, maybe excluding some very talented late maturing boys. And uh, they were trying to do things uh, in terms of assessing growth and maturity, but they weren't too clued up on the subject matter. They weren't sure if they were, uh, they were using the appropriate methodologies, uh, if they were measuring kids too regularly, but also, you know, uh, how to actually uh, understand the data once they had uh, collected it from the kids in terms of, well, what do we do with an early mature or a late mature? So I sat down with uh, Jed Roddy and uh, some of the heads of sports science there at the Premier League and discussed the matter. And uh, we got together uh, to uh, develop a program where we would be able to set up a system for a regular consistent measurement uh, across the various academies. And uh, recognising, you know, that uh, you know one person doesn't have all the expertise in a particular area, we pulled in 13 of the world's leading experts in the subject of growth and maturity to sort of uh, uh, come up with what would be best practice in this area. And so we came up with a, a simple straightforward set of procedures that we could share across the clubs and uh, that would also be embedded within the PMA which collects all of the data across the clubs and uh, set these systems in go. And uh, so James Bunce I worked very, very closely with, who's now with uh, US Soccer. And uh, we set up educational workshops. Uh, we had them in the North, the Midlands and in the South. Uh, we've educated about 250 practitioners uh, across the programs. And working with Dr. Claire Henkin, who's a level four anthropometrist, we actually certified a lot of the uh, practitioners in terms of how to measure growth and maturity. So we knew we were getting good quality data and uh, that the clubs were using appropriate methods. And uh, so so as I said, it's been really quite successful because all of a sudden we've got people, you know, measuring on a regular basis at the appropriate times and knowing exactly how to uh, sort of uh, take those measurements and uh, how to interpret the data coming through. So it's been really, really positive. So just on the, on the back of that, do you just want to take us through the kind of process that a practitioner may go through on, a, um, on one of the dates that's been specified for measuring these boys? And then okay. maybe a little yeah. bit on what happens after, after that and what they actually do with the data? 
Right, so what would typically happen is uh, they'll have an organisation or it will be done within the club, will come by and they'll take the assessments on the boys. And these assessments are either done at either a three-month or a four-month interval. Uh, what we found early on was that a lot of the clubs were, uh, you know, almost measuring on a weekly basis. And, you know, kids were shrinking. And it wasn't because they were really shrinking, it was just simply error in the measurement. So it's really hard to interpret any data when you're over-assessing it. So we knew that if we went between sort of three-month or four-month intervals and we had the quality of the measurements high, and reliable, then we knew that when we were seeing change, it actually was true change. And so that information can then get entered into the PMA, which is a lot of background information on the players, and it will provide uh, indications of uh, predicted heights of the kids uh, with confidence intervals built around it, both 50% and 90%. It will tell you what percentage of predicted adult stature that they've got. Uh, that will then allow us to say, well, for their age and their sex, are they advanced, are they on time, are they delayed? It will also tell us where they are in terms of uh, you know, their overall maturation status. So are they prepubertal? Are they going through the growth spurt? Or have they passed through that growth spurt? But in addition, the system uh, plots growth velocities in terms of uh, peak height velocity, but also peak weight velocity. So we can kind of confirm when those growth stages are occurring. Uh, we also have the Meerwald method, which a lot of the clubs were using. Uh, there are some limitations with the Meerwald method. So we did build in some error adjustments for that into the system too. But uh, So if the clubs want to continue with that, that's perfectly fine. But the, the three main ones is we have the Camus Roche, for percentage of predicted adult stature, so an index of somatic maturation, uh, the growth curves, and then the uh, peak height velocity uh, through the Meerwald of offset method. So all that data is coming into the clubs, and uh, they get instantaneous feedback in terms of where their kids are in terms of their development. So what would be, I mean, you touched on it a little bit there, the, the Meerwald method, what are the, what are the limitations to that? Okay, so if you look at the Meerwald method, and uh, it was developed up in Canada, and uh, the idea is it predicts the age at when children hit peak height velocity. Now, in principle, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if a kid hits peak height velocity early, early on in their life, well, then they're an early mature. If it's late on, 15 or 16, they're a late mature. Uh, and so the method was very popular because it gives you an indication relative to a certain anchor point, peak height velocity, whether a kid is on time, early or delayed. However, there have some, some problems associated with it. And Professor Molina, uh, when he was looking at some of the data where he had actual true age at peak height velocity, and then he used the equation to predict uh, predicted age at height velocity, he found a lot of differences. And there was some systematic error associated with age. So if you use it in very young kids, it will typically underestimate age at peak height velocity so it will say that kids are early maturing but in reality they're probably on time and if you go with the older kids the 13s, 14s, 15s you'll find that it over predicts age at peak height velocity now the errors aren't that bad but the problem is, is that the errors get magnified when we look at early and late maturing boys and the size of the magnification of the error can be quite huge I remember working with one club and they came in they were showing me some data and uh, they had a boy who was 15 years old and it was telling them that he hadn't hit his peak height velocity yet and they said to me, we're pretty sure he has, you know, we've got all his growth data, it looks like he's gone through his curve. If anything, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, going through peak weight velocity. So I said, well, what age is he? And they said, oh, he's 15 years old. And I said, okay, well, there is an error associated with 15 years old. And are you sure, you know, he's, he's an early maturing boy? And he says, oh, yeah, he's way more mature than the other boys. He's shaving, you know, he's starting to sweat, need to use deodorant, <laughs> etc. There's all those signs of an early maturing boy. So we then went and looked at some of Molina's data. And about the average error for a 15-year-old boy, boy uh, is somewhere uh, who's an early mature somewhere almost about two years and so when we actually subtracted that from what the score was yeah it was very clear that he was well past his age at peak high velocity and the danger there is you know that kid 
had gone past peak height velocity, you know, he, he was out of that kind of danger zone for overuse for injuries, for the stress-related sort of injuries. And so he's also at a period of time where he can probably, you know, testosterone levels are racing. He could probably benefit from, you know, more hypertrophic, high, more intense type of training program. Uh, so we're kind of like selling him short to some extent by, by treating him as, as somebody who hadn't gone through it yet. So that was the major limitation uh, associated with that method. And, you know, it's, it's an okay method, but you really just, it's like any kind of method in science. You've got to be aware of its limitations. And, you know, the Camus Roche has its limitations, you know, as, as do all methods, but you just need to be aware of them. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Just yes, well, move... just, 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 sorry, just to add to that, I think Go most on. clubs are probably moved away from the, the Mirwald method and are probably focusing okay. more on the Camus Roche. Okay. So just before we move on, I think and I'd, I'd seen an article on it today, and it's still it's still, still kind of out there with the um, the relative age effect. Yep. And I just wanted you, and we had a chat little little chat beforehand. Just like you to clarify the difference between the relative age effect, relative age effect, and the um, and biological maturity, because you said that that's often misinterpreted. Yeah, they're often considered as synonymous. A lot of people assume that uh, because a child is relatively old for their age group, so I guess relative age to describe it is where you're born relative to the cohort. So if you're born early on in the year, uh, then you're the oldest boy in the under-11s versus if you were born relatively late on, say a July birthday, you're going to be one of the youngest. And there's quite a lot of evidence of relative age effects, particularly in boys' sports. And uh, so a lot of, sort of uh, talent ID people, talent development people assume that because you're relatively old, you must also be more physically mature. But that's certainly not the case. You know, when we look at our data in the academies, the correlation between relative age and maturity status is about 0.2. So it's a relatively poor indicator of physical maturity. And what we actually find is that quite often a lot of the quarter three boys and the quarter four boys are actually as mature if not even more mature than the quarter ones and quarter twos and the reason being is being a quarter one or a quarter two you've got advantages and if you're a quarter three or quarter four you've got to make up for it in some kind of way and well being an early mature can, can be one of those benefits now what's fascinating is as well if you look in the academies you will see in the under sixes and in under sevens, you'll see relative age effects. Now, we know that the maturity benefits associated with being an early maturer in terms of speed, size and strength, they really don't fully emerge until about the ages of 11. So if we're seeing relative age effects at under sixes and under sevens, we're not talking about physical differences there. We're talking probably more about cognitive, motor, psychosocial differences. Uh, and, and that certainly makes a lot of a lot of sense to me. So I, I don't think we can consider the, the same as two. And, and just to add to that, you know, further evidence, uh, probably the best evidence that these are two independent effects came from uh, Mandy Johnson's recent study. Now, Mandy is a, a good colleague. She's part of our Premier League advisory board group. Uh, used to be the physio at Man United, uh, did all the assessments of growth and maturity there. And she published a data with Aspire data and United data showing the relative age effect and showing the maturity biases and how they changed with age. And what you saw was that very strong relative age effects, but uh, they kind of sort of uh, petered out uh, over time. And so as the kids got older, they, they kind of uh, reduced a little bit. But with the uh, maturity effects, they only really kicked in in the under 11s. Uh, but when they kicked in, you know, they only increased over that period of time. So uh, what she found in her work was that, you know, the uh, relative age effect relative to the uh, maturity bias, the maturity bias was about, almost uh, 10 times more, more in magnitude than the relative age effect. 
And uh, whereas the relative age effect seemed to decline over time, uh, the maturity effect or the selection bias only increased over time. And by the time you got to the under-17s, I think 80% of all the boys in the academies were uh, uh, early maturing boys. And there was only 4% late maturers uh, once you got to the uh, under-17s. So, you know, some people argue that, you know, don't bother with bio-banding or maturity because, you know, everything sorts itself out in the end. Well, yeah, that's maybe the case with relative age effects, but no, the maturity effect just increases and increases with age. And uh, so it, it's not being cancelled out. So, yeah, you've got two very different effects there. So you mentioned bio-banding. That's a big, that's a big mm -hmm. part of what I wanted to, to chat to you yep. about. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the best place to start would be... Um, why why it's important and why there's been a big yeah why 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 <laughs> yeah well, I guess the thing is is maturity you know it all comes down to maturation so uh, within age groups you will find uh, you know uh, you've got a group of under 11s under 10s etc and you're going to find huge variations in terms of biological age so as I said you know Mandy did a lot of assessments at Man United and some of the data she's shown me in terms of her skeletal hand wrist x-rays you can see in an under nines age group you can find boys who are 12 and a half biologically competing against boys who are seven and a half biologically so you're looking at five to six years difference in age and uh, the, the, this difference in maturity has, has big implications in terms of physical uh, development, uh, psychosocial development, but also in terms of athletic performance. So with an early maturing boy, an early maturing boy is going to be bigger and heavier, you know, through childhood. But we're not really going to see those advantages in terms of strength, speed and power emerge until the kid hits about 11 years of age. And that's when the early maturing boy is starting to go through puberty. His testosterone levels are increasing greatly. He's going through his growth spurt. And the late maturing boy is still a wee boy at that that point of time and so what we see is a big big advantage in terms of size speed and strength and so in those types of sports such as rugby or football which demand that naturally the early maturing boy's got an advantage technically he might not be any better but physically he's got huge huge advantages and if you look at some of the longitudinal data from belgium if you look at the amsterdam growth studies those advantages in terms of speed strength power they pretty much follow all the way through to the ages of 18. And of course, in youth football, one of the challenges we have is that, uh, you know, we're having to make decisions about kids at the ages of 14 or 15 or so. And it's very difficult to sort of parcel out the effects of maturity at that point. You know, uh, the early maturing boys, they'll go through that growth spurt early. And when they go through the growth spurt, they typically have a more intense pubertal growth spurt too. So more muscle mass as well. So big advantages. Now, late maturer will go through puberty, but it might be 14 or 15 that they do that. And uh, they will, you know, put on some muscle mass, but probably not to the same extent as the uh, early maturer. Uh, they, there are some advantages, though, to being a late maturer. You know, if you are the late maturer, you will spend more time in childhood and, and, and adolescence. And that period of time growing in childhood, even though they have a less intense pubertal growth spurt, typically means that the late maturers end up actually being taller than the early maturers, you know, once they actually reach through to adulthood. But it's only about the ages of 20 or 30 that you start to see those differences in terms of physicality being, being caught up. And in fact, by the time you get to 20 or 30, you quite often see the late maturers surpass the early maturers. But the problem is, is by that time, you know, they've already probably been deselected out of the system. <laughs> so it, it causes all sorts of challenges for, for the coaches who are trying to work with uh, young boys and, and trying to you know, identify who's the most talented or how to pitch them uh, you can against each other for a competition. 
And you could also argue, you know, in, in the long term, there's a downside to being an early maturer because as an early maturing boy, I can just turn up and just physically boss a game. I'm bigger and stronger. I don't need to develop my technical skills, my tactical skills. And this was a common complaint that we had from the academy managers was that... Uh, these guys are great up to about 14 or 15 or so, but when those physical advantages start to deplete and attenuate, that's when they really, really struggle to make that transition to the top level. And the problem is, is a lot of late maturers are kicked out of the system by that point. If you do have a late maturer, however, and this kind of fits in with the underdog effect, uh, they're probably going to be pretty good because if you're a late maturer and you want to stay in the system and you've got this big physical disadvantage, well, technically, psychologically, you're going to have to be pretty darn special. But if you can actually allow a player to stay within the system for long enough and actually eventually emerge, that's probably going to be your best kid down the line. But as I said, you look at the data, you look at the Man United data that Mandy Johnson presented, you look at some of the recent uh, data that Zuber's presented in, in Switzerland, these late maturers, technically, psychologically, a lot better than the early maturers, but there's very few of them, and none of them are typically transitioning on to the top level. So you might get a little bit of cream coming through, but not a lot of it, which is a real kind of challenge for the coaches. In, in the Premier League stuff that you've done, and obviously involved heavily with the with the technical coaches as well as the kind of performance staff, yeah. how hard has it been to get the buy-in from them guys to hang on to these lads past probably... Yeah. Two years previous, when they'd have gone at 13, they're actually hanging on to them because of this, yeah. how they've been educated? It's a, it's a challenge, uh, uh, but uh, I think uh, you know the clubs are now educated on the subject matter and the coaches, and they're starting to see the importance and the potential benefits of holding on to those boys. But it's tough because they have to make a decision at that point and, and look at what's, what's placed in front of them at that time. And I, I guess the key thing is having as much information about those boys as possible in terms of knowing that so-and-so is a late maturer and uh, so-and-so might be you know, benefiting greatly because they are an early maturer. And the more information they can have, the better. One of the nice things that we have with the PMA is that the PMA is collecting fitness data at the same time as it's collecting you know, all of the maturity data. And through that, what we've been able to do is actually create uh, age and maturity-specific standards on pretty much all of their fitness tests. So I can go in and I can look at a particular boy in my club and I can compare him relative to his uh, age group standard. And he might not look all that great because you know he's a classic late maturer, but then I compare him relative to his biological age group and actually I can see that he's maybe off the chart. On the flip side, I can look at an early mature and might look great in his age group, but might actually be quite poor uh, when I compare him relative to his biological cohort. And that, that kind of informs me in terms of, well, actually, I need to address this in some kind of way to, to improve the quality of that kid's training to actually improve him in those areas. Uh, Something else we've been kind of looking at in the clubs as well, and this is nice. one of the nice benefits of the biobanding, is that if you look at kids in age group competition, and if you look at the coach evaluations of these kids, early maturers just dominate it in terms of match grades. They get fantastic grades. Uh, late maturers get really, really quite poor grades. But uh, if you suddenly switch it up, so all of a sudden the early mature has moved up, so he's maybe the least mature in the group, and that late mature is you know, uh, you know, banded down, so he's the most mature in the group, all of a sudden it completely flips it on his head. All of a sudden the early mature is getting rubbish scores, and the late mature is getting brilliant <laughs> scores. So this is one of the nice things about the bioban, and you get to see the kid in a slightly different developmental context. And uh, you know, having the opportunity to see them in both kind of conditions sometimes allows you to actually see through the, the differences in maturity and actually figure out, well, you know, when this kid is actually pitched against kids who are maybe of a similar, similar physical development, you know, this kid might actually be a player. He could be quite good. So that's been one of the nice bonuses of it. Is there any scenario where you wouldn't bioband a kid? So you've made a decision yeah. to, to go on that route, but there's certain kids that 
don't fit that and why yeah. wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, so for example, uh, when we have our tournaments, what we do is we you know, we set up the bands for the clubs and the clubs will try and identify kids who fit within those bands. But they have full discretion and we highly encourage this that they consider the psychological and the technical development of the kids. So if you have a boy who is an early maturer and he fits within a band, but you don't think maybe emotionally or psychologically he's ready there. So the coaches will know this. You know, the sports psychologists working with the kids will have an idea uh, behind that. Well, if you don't think he's ready for the band, don't throw him up. You know, if it's not going to be a positive experience, for the child and likewise you might have a late maturer who maybe is constitutionally big already you know mum and dad just happen to be a big he's technically fantastic really really gifted thriving in his environment and playing him down probably isn't going to be of benefit then you know maybe don't play him down that's fine so there is a degree of uh, you know a flexibility with it and uh, at the last tournament we had a number of coaches who said you know we had kids who fit within these bands but you know we, we didn't take them with us because we didn't think it would be the best environment for them and in one of the one of the teams as well, we we had a band which was ninety to ninety five percent of adult height, which is right on that growth spurt. And there was a wee lad who was about ninety point two percent, so he just fit into this band, but he was at the sort of a base end of that band. Um, the coach had a lot of reservations about it. And, you know, he personally wouldn't have put it in, put him into that band. And he said straight away he could see that the boy was struggling. And so what he did is he did the smart thing. He took him down, he played him in the 85 to 90% band and it worked to treat. And, you know, that's the kind of insight that we're looking from from the coaches. So, so that was really quite useful in that regard. So, so those are kind of situations where we would do that. Is there an is there optimal banding? Is there a is there a banding that you stick to all the way through, or is that changeable depending on the situation, depending on the club, tournament? Uh, clubs clubs experiment with different bands. You know, we've okay. done different bands. Uh, the 85-90 seem to work quite nicely because 85 to 90% of adult height is kind of late childhood, early start of puberty. And so, you know, there's not going to be particularly huge differences uh, between the kids. When we did the 90 to 95, I don't think that... It, it was good. It restricted the variance, but it, it wasn't ideal because, you know, there is quite a big difference between somebody at the start of the growth spurt and at the end of the growth spurt. So we'd probably go and revise that, I think, going forward. But uh, the key thing to consider is if, if you look in an age group, you're going to find the difference between the most mature boy and the least mature boy is typically around 16% of predicted adult height. And so you can get these real David and Goliath scenarios where an early maturing boy will just completely boss the game and the late maturing boy is going to get lost. Uh, but if you have the bioband, then what you do is you restrict that to 5%. So you're restricting, you're managing the physicality a little bit better. And so you're, you're still going to get big boys and little boys, you know, because there's going to be those constitutional genetic differences between boys. But what you do is you reduce those sort of David and Goliath situations where you got one lad who's just completely and utterly running the show and one lad who's completely lost. Uh, so, you know, big boys still have to learn how to play as big boys, as do little boys. It's just that you manage that physicality a little bit better. And what we see coming out of that is a much more technical and tactical oriented game. And, you know, that's the feedback that the kids give us. They say, that, you know, the early maturing boys are playing up in those games. They can't rely on the physicality. You know, they actually have to pass the ball. They have to play as part of a team. They play tactically. And plus, they're going up against boys who are older than them and smarter than them. So they have to learn how to play their game. And what's been really nice is a lot of the older boys, the late maturers playing down, are taking them under their wing. They're mentoring them. So they're learning a lot from the experience and this is one of the challenges those early maturing boys stay in their age group they're just not getting challenged at all they realize that at some point if they want to play under 18s under 21s under 23s they're going to have to play against full-grown adults 
and they're not going to be able to use their physicality. And so they realize that, you know, they have to develop these skills. And in the age groups where there's oppression or winning, they're not going to rely on those because they're going to work on what's, what's best for them. And so it's taking them out of their comfort zone and challenging them, which is nice. Uh, on the flip side, you know, we've got those late maturers playing down and yeah, they do tell us it's less of a physical challenge, but they do admit that that physical challenge being modified and managed a little bit more effectively allows them to actually use their skills more often. You actually develop those skills so they can actually use their physicality, use the technical things, the technical skills, because, you know, the coaches describe them as just getting stomped all over on a Sunday and uh, it, it's no use for them in their development. But in these sort of biobanding games, they get those opportunities. But what's been really fascinating too is that they step up into these leadership positions. So they almost take on the role that the early maturer does and, you know, the early maturer is taking on the role of the late maturer. So those boys who are the uh, uh, late maturers are taking on positions of leadership. They're directing the other boys, mentoring the other boys, doing things that they would never actually do in a real game and actually getting a chance to show the managers and the coaches that they actually really can play when they're matched physically. And again, you know, one thing we've got to keep in mind with the bandanding it is not a replacement for age group competition. It's something that sits alongside the age group competition so as late maturing boys are still going to get tons of challenge in their age group competition we're not taking that away from them but what we're doing is we're diversifying the learning experience so they get new challenges just in the same way as you know you know dean smith who heads up the premier league game programs doing a fantastic job of looking at different kind of formats we just recently evaluated a player-led festival with them you know where kids were mixed up across teams and had to organize everything themselves that was really successful they got out of balance competitions they got power play futsal where they're playing dance music and bioban is just one of those other kind of formats which challenges the kids in new ways and you know forces them to, to do new things and you know the feedback that we've had from the kids has been great you know, we've done focus groups now with uh, 48 boys, both earlys and lates. And out of the 48, 47 of the 48 said they wanted biobanding integrated within the existing games program. They don't want to get rid of age groups, and we don't want to get rid of age groups either. Age groups are great if you want to match the kids in cognitive, motor, social development, etc. But they have their limitations, and that's where biobanding comes in. And uh, what was great about the feedback as well is there were consistent differences between those earlies and the lates. So the earlies were saying, yeah, bigger challenge, more opportunity to play technically, tactically, and they gained in confidence from playing up. And likewise, the late maturers were saying more opportunity to actually take command of a game, to actually be the leader. And yeah, the fact that we're getting consistent differences uh, within our own studies and the fact that, you know, clubs such as Bournemouth or Everton, you know, with Liverpool, John Moores have done their own sort of internal studies looking at the benefits of buying banding and they're finding exactly the same as us. And that gives us more and more confidence that, you know, there's something there and it's certainly worth trying. I'm just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Sean. Hope you're enjoying part one. Um, so I just wanted to say a massive shout out to both Coach Me Plus and Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. So Coach Me Plus have been on board for quite a while now and I really appreciate their support going forward. I know they've had quite a few changes to their software recently uh, and I did have a little um, a little preview of them changes and I know they're happy to um, to showcase that online to, um, to deliver like a, a tutorial uh, and, a, and a bit of a demo. So if you are interested and you're looking for an AMS system, Definitely get in touch with the guys at Coach Me Plus and they'll be happy to show you um, all the new updates and, and what the software is currently looking like. Also with the guys at Force Decks, if you are interested in anything to do with jumping, um, make sure you check out uh, episode 139 with Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is one of the co-founders of Force Decks. So anything to do with force plates, with um, jumping, uh, monitoring, um, 
and all the kind of biomechanic biomechanics uh, stuff that, that comes along with all of all the three subjects uh, number 139 is definitely worth checking out so back to the part back to part two with Sean um, hope enjoy it and I hope you're getting tons from it uh, like I did the, the things that are in the in the kind of public eye with regards to this are, are tournaments and matches yep. But there's things going on in training as well, as we discussed oh, yeah. before. Do you just want to give us a little, few little stories that we, we chatted about before about using yeah, it in training? Yeah, very much so. Uh, what's been brilliant about the biobanding is just, you know, the fun thing is it's not the scientists coming up with the ideas, it's the clubs and the practitioners because they know the problems and they know the challenges they face and they're coming up with the exciting solutions and we're kind of just going along with them. And so, you know, biobanding as competitions was their idea, but they've been coming up with some really other nice strategies as it applies to training. And a lot of this, I think, has been stimulated by some of the great work that uh, Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver have been doing at Cardiff Met in relation to physical youth development. So the big argument here is that, you know, if you're going to be training and conditioning young kids, then in an ideal scenario, if the kid's got the technical competence skills, then you want to match the stimulus relative to the training stimulus relative to the maturation status of the child. And as I explained earlier, you could have a, an 11-year-old boy who is mid-puberty, an 11-year-old boy who's still a child at that point of time. Now, if we look at adaptation and gains in terms of strength, speed, performance and childhood, it's largely neuromuscular. So things working on technical skills, coordination, plyometrics are going to be giving you your best bang from your buck in terms of your training. But as a kid goes through puberty, particularly with the boys, it could be increases in testosterone, changes in the metabolic systems, etc. Different type of stimuli are actually going to be more effective so you can introduce hypertrophy, your anaerobic type of training. But you've got to keep in mind that for one boy, that might occur at 11, and another boy, that might occur at 15 or 16. So what are some of the clubs are doing now is looking at the technical competence of the kids, but also looking at the physical maturity and actually starting to group them by maturity status, so by abandoning them for training for some of these conditioning sessions. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So, for example, I always like to, you know, showcase some of Mark, uh, Matt DePledge's work at Southampton. So what will Southampton sometimes will do is they will have certain bands where they have got uh, boys who are up prepubertal and you could have boys from the ages of 11 to 13 in there but their training will focus upon things that should be appropriate for prepubertal boys you've then got a group of boys who are at say about 88 to say 95% of adult stature and we know that's the growth spurt and the growth spurt's been a real problem in football because that's when you get the overuse injuries you get your slatters and even earlier than that you're going to get your severs and things such as stress fractures occurring at that point of time and so it's a period of time you've got to be really really careful with kids but uh, you know the problem is as I said some kids enter it at 11 other kids might enter it at 15 and this has issues in terms of if you're going to be grouping them by age for training well how do you take that into account so what some of the clubs have been doing is they've been recognizing these kind of danger zones when they're going through the growth spurt and uh, so they'll monitor the kids a little bit more closely they'll look at things such as functional movement skills, they'll look at training load, they'll look at previous injury, they'll look at are they in that kind of growth spurt. And if they're getting a whole bunch of red flags kicking in, then they'll actually adjust the training programs accordingly to reduce the type of injuries and the load on the child. And uh, maybe focus on things such as maybe adolescent awkwardness, which might be more important at those kind of times. And then once the kids are kind of through that, well, we know they're experiencing that peak weight velocity testosterone is really kicking in, you know, the metabolic systems are changing at that point of time. Then other forms of training can be introduced. 
So what you've got is you've got uh, clubs, a lot of clubs now buy banding for training, so grouping kids of various ages but into maturity bands. And uh, the work that the, the clubs are doing relative to you know trying to reduce those over overuse injuries is we're getting some phenomenal feedback from the clubs. Uh, some of the clubs saying you know that Osgood Slatters and Severs are just something that really doesn't occur within the academies anymore because they know exactly when those kind of injuries are occurring. Now, what's fascinating is other sports are picking up on this now. So ballet, particularly who we work with, but also British gymnastics are very interested in this because in those sports such as ballet and gymnastics, you know, injury is just one of those things that happens to everybody. But you want to try and manage it as effectively as possible. And if you look at gymnasts in particular, uh, you know, the growth spurt and, and for also for the ballet dancers, the growth spurt presents a real challenge for them. And what we found with some of the some of the data certainly we're looking at in ballet uh, is really quite fascinating, and it appears to be. Really really problematic for the late maturers because a late maturing boy for example when he goes through his growth spurt he's going to be maybe 15 or 16 when he does that late maturing girl exactly the same thing now, an early maturing boy, early maturing girl, they may be 9, 10 or 11 when they go through it. And when we look at age as it relates to training load, you're going to be doing probably double the amount of training load at the ages of maybe 15 or 16 that you might be doing at the ages of 10 or 11. So if you're a 10 or 11 year old, yeah, you'll probably go through your growth spurt and probably not have too many challenges because the load is quite low. But if you're a late maturer, boy, you're in trouble because all of a sudden you've got pretty much twice the amount of load. And if you look at an example in the context of ballet, Misty Coleman, one of the US, is top ballet dancers, she didn't hit puberty until 18. She came down with six stress fractures during that period of time. She was competing like th almost like a, you know, a, what she called a three times as much as a ten-year-old normally would be as they're going through the growth spurt in terms of her training load, certainly. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just a, a perfect storm. And interestingly, some of the work I've been doing with clubs, you know, looking at individual athletes, it seems to be often those athletes who are coming down with the stress fractures are quite often late maturers because of the fact that. The training load is so much higher for them when they're actually going through those phases. So I think there's a lot of research still to be done in this area, but it's some really fascinating stuff that you know that the clubs are coming up with uh, in terms of strategies to address that. So it's got really exciting times ahead with that. Absolutely. So is there is there clubs uh, down the pyramid that are getting involved in this as well, not just the Premier League? Oh no, there's uh, a lot of clubs who are very much interested in the subject matter. You know, I deal with uh, clubs all the way down to you know Division ones and Division twos, who are very aware of uh, the importance of growth and maturation. And the nice thing about this is, uh, well, certainly the PMA I know was open to pretty much about twenty nine of the clubs, so all your Premier Leagues and your Cat ones automatically had it. But uh, don't quote me on this, but uh, I believe it's being expanded up to a lot of other clubs too. And and the nice thing about the growth and maturity stuff is that uh, the growth and maturity measures are actually relatively simple you know to do you're talking about getting measures of height weight maybe seated height as well if you want and uh, you know as long as you've got the, the background demographic data on parents etc then you can start uh, plugging this sort of information in and uh, get instantaneous feedback and uh, if you have an understanding of the subject matter it's quite easy to apply mm -hmm. So one last thing I want to ask you before I let you go and that's yep. on, on the from the point of view of the coach or a scout I mean just in my position uh, previously when I was going to kind of exit trials at 16 yeah. and 17, yeah. how can coaches and scouts put a, a, a figure on that and say that guy's, that, that child's there, that, that boy's there? How, yeah. how easy is that to do? 
It's a tough one. Uh, I yeah. guess if you're trying to eyeball a kid, and there's a nice little paper that's just come out from, uh, can't remember, is it Switzerland it's come out of, with actually looking at coaches' assessments of whether a kid is early on time or late. And, and they found some reasonably good accuracy in terms of uh, whether scouts and coaches can tell if a kid is early on time or late for the maturity. There's certainly things you could do if you, if you didn't have the data on the kid. You could look at things such as, uh, for example, you know, when I go out to the clubs and we're sometimes scouting, looking at games, a lot of the scouts are asking, well, how can you tell if he's early or late? Well, one of the key things to do is if you're looking at childhood, growth in childhood is largely in the sort of uh, the legs and the extremities. Uh, in puberty, the growth is largely in the torso. So if you've got a kid who's got legs that go on for absolutely ever and they've got this <laughs> short torso, they've got this uh, baby round face and uh, they've got this squeaky high voice, well, that kid any puberty yet. When kids go through puberty, you start to see the muscle mass go on, the bigger torso, more muscle going on, and uh, you'll see the changes in the face, a more squarer face, broader cheekbones, etc. The jaw starting to narrow out a little bit, the voice dropping. So there's a lot of things you can do in eyeball a kid. You know, you might see things such as more sweating. You might see some facial hair, some changes in terms of acne. So there's a lot of things you can do in terms of eyeballing a kid. But uh, if you're doing things such as trial days, there's definitely a lot that you can do. If you're interested in looking at the relative age effect, you can start to have uh, you know uh, information sort of designating whether or not a kid is a quarter one or a quarter four. But if, if you had certain data on the kids, it would be possible to ID them as being early on time or late. Now, there's a really nice study that came out. I was very fortunate to be one of the reviewers for this. Uh, it was conducted by David Mann, who was at PSV Eindhoven. And they were really concerned about the relative age effect because it just kept on bringing in all these quarter one kids and so they decided that they were going to see if they could something they could maybe do to help their coaches sort of or their coaches and scouts kind of uh, see through this effect so what they did is uh, they uh, got a whole bunch of videos of kids playing football and they got the scouts to evaluate them and they presented them in three different conditions and the first condition which is just classic control condition they had a bunch of kids different age groups with the relative age effect and the scouts went out and graded them and lo and behold all those kids in the first quarter got brilliant grades all the kids in the fourth quarter got rubbish grades so clear selection bias in terms of the eyes of the coaches and it's kind of funny because some of the criticism of the work that we get is oh don't worry the coaches can see through it well you know the data <laughs> suggests that's certainly not the case and the match grade data in the academy settings says no actually there's a big bias there towards early maturers so anyway, first condition, uh, the, the bias is present. So second condition, they show them the videos, same games, etc. But this time they tell the scouts who is the oldest and who is the youngest. So they give them all the birthdays, all that kind of data and information. And uh, they get them to evaluate them afterwards. And yet, lo and behold, there's still a relative age effect kicking in. Those oldest boys are getting great grades. The youngest boys are getting the rubbish grades. So they haven't solved the problem with information. But what they did in the next condition was really exciting. They started playing around with a uh, number bibs so what they did is they gave a, a number one bib to the oldest kid and a number eight kid uh, a number eight bib to the youngest kid so all of a sudden you got one two three four five six seven eight a rank order for the oldest to the youngest they then went back and they evaluated the scouts evaluation so this time the scout knows who's the oldest you know because he's got a visual cue in front of them all of a sudden the relative age effect bias completely dropped out of the system and so right. I thought, God, that's, that's really clever. And, you know, when, once we processed the whole thing, I spoke to Mark Williams, the editor. Mark said, yeah, if you want to get in contact with uh, David, that would be great. So I wrote David an email and said, oh, really enjoyed the paper, really, really clever idea. And, yeah, David said he enjoyed it, but he said it was quite fascinating. He, he brought up something that was fresh in my mind. He says, yeah, relative age, one thing, but, it, it, you know, they could be relatively old, but an early mature or a late mature, and we, we haven't taken that into account. It's probably more important. 
And so what we did is we agreed we'd actually uh, replicate a study over here at Bath, and we've just completed a study at Bath looking at maturity and the maturity bias, and uh, we found exactly the same thing. You know, if you look at a normal age group game, the early maturing boys are going to get advantage, they're going to get the favouritism, and so there's a strong selection bias or a grading performance bias. As soon as we had the kids all lined up with their bibs and the early maturer got the number one, the late maturer got the number eight, the bias completely fell out of the situation. So it was fun chatting to the coaches afterwards because they said just having that little visual cue, it made it a little bit difficult for them because they were trying to grade the kid but also then trying to take into account at the same time, well, this boy's early, this boy's late. Am I taking that into account? And uh, yeah, they completely cancelled out the uh, the bias effect just with this bib strategy. So, you know, kudos to David for coming up with it. And uh, what's been fun is, you know, I was engaged with the clubs quite a lot. There's a number of clubs trying this out now at the uh, kind of scouting level and the trial level. And, you know, some clubs have also done, you know, the quarter four recruitment days. I know Hibernian have done that, Norwich have done that. Uh, right, okay. Most of the teams, I think Brighton have done that as well. And a whole host of teams have been playing out with that. But again, one of the challenges, that's relative age. You know, you're probably just going to get a bunch of quarter fours who also happen to be early maturers. So <laughs> kind of need to think of the two effects together. So, so yes, a lot of exciting stuff going on there. And I think one of the things to always keep in mind as well, you know, this is still early doors as it relates to, you know, coming up with these strategies. But it's really exciting that the clubs are willing to take those kind of risks and come up with these kind of creative solutions. And if they work, that's great. If they don't work, that's fine. Not a problem at all. You go back and you solve things. You just things and you continue to move on but you know big kudos to all the clubs for you know for uh you know coming on board with us as part of this journey and learning about growth and maturation and you know as i said i might know a wee bit about growth and maturity but i know nothing about what goes on in gymnastics or ballet or football it's going to take those practitioners in the clubs uh to actually kind of solve these problems and there's been a number of, you know, people like Chris Hedges, people like Sam Scott, Alex Gross, etc., uh, from Norwich and Southampton, who've been really getting a grasp of this and really coming up with some creative ideas. And uh, it's been nice to see them having some success with it too. Uh, and also Ben over at uh, Bournemouth. Uh, Ben's been doing some really nice work there too. No, superb. Well, thank you very much yeah. for... Um for your time and your insights. It's been been fascinating to chat through this, uh, this subject. Yeah, so thank you very much, Rob. No, it's a pleasure, mate. Where can people get in touch with you? Where's the best place to find you? Please drop me an email. I'm more than happy to chat about this stuff. So uh, my email's s.coming at bath.ac.uk. And uh, as I said, you know, it was my work with the Premier League. The clubs have got access to me, so they call me up on a fairly regular basis and uh, with questions here and there, and I can help them. But, yeah, I'm more than happy to extend this uh, to other sports. And, you know, uh, you know, people aren't too protective about the general principles, and they want to see overall sort of a practice improve uh, across across different sports. So it's been really nice in terms of being quite a sort of a, a good philosophy in terms of sharing information and guidance here too. But uh, yeah, it's it's we're getting a lot of interest from overseas, a lot of interest from different sports as well. Uh, triathlon, for example, we're in touch. Uh, they feel that uh, it's a really interesting one with triathlon because, you know, it's probably the late maturer who's probably got the best body for triathlon. But if you look at the junior triathlon events, they're pretty much sprint triathlons, so they actually benefit the early maturer. So I was chatting with Dan Solisimi from uh, UK Triathlon and. One of the things he suggested was, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the, the Brownlee brothers, you know, classic later mature and boys, uh, ideal physiques and fantastic, but maybe at the age of 11 or 12, they might not have actually come through the system or they wouldn't have been probably the best athletes. But, uh, you know, we need to be able to, you know, detect those kind of differences uh, and not just save those late matures, but also challenge those early maturers. And, you know, I think this is one thing I get hung up on a wee bit is that everybody thinks we're doing this to save the late maturer. No, at the adult level, whether you're quarter one, two, three or four, early 
really on time or late should have absolutely no bearing. You know, if we've got an efficient, effective system, we should have as many quarter ones as quarter fours, as early as late. You know, they're all kids, and if we can optimally challenge them in all ways, whether they're early or late, I think that's that's for the benefit. Nah, superb. Well, thank you very much, Sean. I'll let you yep. go and get yeah, on with your uh, Friday evening. But I, uh, I really appreciate, really appreciate your time. No, thank you very much, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 147 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Sean for giving up his time in a, a very busy period. Um, I know he was um, definitely fitting me into little loose gaps that he had in his diary. So massive thanks to Sean. Um, also, massive thanks to both, uh, well, all the FA, uh, Valve Performance, um, Coach Me Plus, and Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. Uh, and really excited to announce that partnership uh, with the Football Association uh, moving forward. So, really excited to uh, to continue that relationship, and hopefully, it gets the um, some good information to to where it needs to go. So looking forward to speaking to you in the next couple of episodes uh, and I'll speak to you soon.